Welcome back to Season 1, Episode 3 of Dialogue Dilemmas. I'm your host, Megan. Last time, I discussed how cognitive load may affect political dialogue with my guest, Elise, and if you haven't had a chance to listen to that and are curious about that, maybe wondering what the heck cognitive load means and how it can relate to political dialogue, you can listen to that on Spotify or on my website, or hopefully where you can find it via wherever you accessed this episode. Today I'm going to be starting a multi-part discussion on the role of two specific emotions in political conflict, fear and hope. And this episode today, I'm going to be just focusing on fear. So for some people, why we would talk about fear in a conversation on political dialogue may be obvious. In case that isn't obvious to you or you're wondering where I'm going with this, I think that this is relevant because fear affects our behavior and how we engage with political conflicts and dialogue, and fear can affect our mood, which affects our behavior, and then our choices and our behavior affect our circumstances, and that in turn can cycle back and affect, again, our feelings, and it can kind of create a self-perpetuating cycle, which is what I want to talk about today, and what the authors of the paper I'm going to be talking about today, Explore. First, I want to just name that there's a lot of different conflicting messages about fear. So for example, two of the biggest messages that I think we hear about fear are one is it's this base emotion that we need to overcome and it's holding us back. An example of that might be this book that, disclaimer, I've never actually read, but I've seen a lot just in the world, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway by psychologist Susan Jeffers, which I did look into that book a little more when I was thinking about using it as an example for this episode. And I found that it is basically about overcoming fear and kind of it holding you back. But then the flip side of the coin is this idea that fear is a gift and it's like our intuitive wisdom that keeps us safe. And for this, I'm thinking about the book, The Gift of Fear, Survival Signals That Protect Us From Violence, which was written by Gavin DeBecker was his name, and he was actually a security specialist. And I think I did skim a little bit of this book before. And the idea behind that book is basically what it says, that fear is a gift and that oftentimes when we end up in dangerous situations, it's because we may be weren't in tune with the signals our body was giving us, um, telling us that something was amiss, and that by, I think his argument is that by tuning into our bodies more and our gut instinct that if something doesn't feel right, we can help keep ourselves and others safer. I'm going to come back to both of these ideas when I get into the main academic research I'm going to be talking about today. But first I want to talk a little about ways that I see fear showing up in political conflicts and discussions in the Chico community. So for example, obviously right now many of our lives are online and most of the way that I keep my pulse on the discourse in the community is by looking at online discussions. And there was recently a Facebook post by the Chico Enterprise Record about a new shelter location opening up for people in the community experiencing homelessness. And some commenters on there were expressing fears about this service, such as 
keep it small or more will come from other parts of the country. Or fears such as, they will and have destroyed hotels, who pays for that? So that fear of being financially liable. And then on the other side, you have people who, it seems to me, are afraid of people who are homeless being dehumanized. So for example, comments like, do most of you really wish them, meaning homeless people, erased? Or they want them to disappear. And then even an issue that you might not expect to be so volatile, traffic construction can also stimulate fear. So on another Chico ER post about new roundabouts being constructed, there were 143 comments. Um, And which, I mean, that's great that people are engaging so much on this subject. But there were a lot of fears being expressed. On the one side, you have fears that this would cause more accidents. And then basically the concern is the same on both sides because the people who want the roundabouts say these are safer. So how can we put all these different fears into perspective? Um, Today I'm going to be drawing on a paper by, I apologize for the mispronunciation of her name, but I think it's Maria Yaramovich who is a professor in psychology with the University of Warsaw, and Daniel Bartal, an Israeli academic who since the 1980s has been focused on conflict studies, political psychology, intractable conflict, and peace building. And I I do want to just define this phrase intractable conflict real quick because they use it in this paper a lot. It's basically just conflict that has been going on a long time, and possibly over generations or even centuries, and seems resistant to resolution even with multiple attempts by various community members, politicians, whoever, to help resolve the conflict. And while some of these conflicts in Chico may not have been lasting centuries or generations, at least not that many generations, I do see them as intractable in a way because they seem to keep perpetuating and using the same sound bites, you hear the same sort of ideas just going around in circles with each other. Now, this paper that they wrote together is called The Dominance of Fear Over Hope in the Life of Individuals and Collectives, and that will be cited in the show notes, and it's also available on researchgate.net. So hopefully by the time you listen to this, it will still be available and you won't have to get behind a paywall to access that. You could just try doing a Google search as well if you cannot find it from the information that I've provided here. I do want to note that this is a theoretical paper, not empirical, meaning that for this particular paper, the authors did not conduct primary research, but they're drawing on other primary research that many, many other researchers have done in various fields from psychology to neuroscience to conflict studies. And it's actually very dense, which is why I'm breaking this down into multiple episodes. So Yaramovich and Bartol start by acknowledging that emotional forces have been relatively disregarded in theories of conflict. That's a direct quote. And I'm mentioning this because these first few episodes of this podcast, I'm trying to kind of set up what is the viewpoint, what is the perspective of this podcast, what is the foundation going forward for what approach I'm taking. And this is a really key point, is I want to acknowledge emotional forces in political dialogue and political conflict. 
Now to dig deeper into that, we're going to have to talk about some brain science, which as I've said before, I'm not a neuroscientist, but I think this is really important to help us frame and understand what's going on when we're having dialogue about contentious issues. So if you're already familiar with like basic brain science, this might be kind of repetitive for you. I think a lot of these ideas do get repeated a lot, especially in like psychology fields or even like communication and conflict resolution. So if this starts getting too repetitive for you, feel free to fast forward or just hang in there and see if it's actually all review or not. The basic idea that they talk about to introduce how emotions function is that there's different pathways for emotions in our brains. There are shorter pathways for emotions that are automatic or sometimes called primary emotions. And this is when there's communication between brain receptors and the central nervous system, and it connects the thalamus with the amygdala. You've probably heard of something called amygdala hijack, aka the fight or flight or freeze response. This is related to that, and this is also sometimes called a subcortical emotional process because it doesn't interact with the cortex. It's also associated more with the right brain as well. Then you have longer pathways for more conscious emotional reactions. And this is when the thalamus and the amygdala also communicate with the cortex. So this is sometimes called a cortical brain process because it is communicating with the cortex versus subcortical does not communicate with the cortex. It's also more associated with the left brain. Now, both of these pathways serve important purposes. The shorter automatic emotions allow us to perceive and respond to stimuli very quickly, which can be really helpful um, when something requires a quick response. But then the longer pathway where we process stimuli and actually connect to our cortex and our cognitive conscious reasoning capacity might be sometimes accurate in ways that that automatic processing isn't. Not to say that the automatic processing isn't always accurate because that I think is the premise of like Gavin De Becker's book is sometimes we ignore those signals to our detriment. Both of these pathways can also be activated at the same time. Like for example, in the case of fear, you might see or read or hear something that gives you an automatic fear response. And so there's communication happening in your brain between the thalamus and the amygdala about something dangerous. And then you might also start thinking about it consciously and assessing the danger and that might confirm, yes, this is something that I know to be dangerous, or it might be in conflict and you might have part of your brain saying, this is dangerous because it reminds me of something that was dangerous, but then your more conscious reasoning would be saying the opposite of, wait, I don't think this is actually dangerous. It's just reminding me of something that is. But the big point that Yaramovich and Bartal make is that the more primary automatic pathway is literally shorter um, there's literally less distance to travel in the brain. And so this process often preempts thinking about things in a more conscious way. To give another example about how that more primary automatic fear process works, basically we're always learning, this is probably intuitive, but we're always like learning what is dangerous and what isn't through our experiences. And sometimes 
things get associated that don't necessarily need to be. So an example is often given of like a dog that has been abused by someone who always wore a hat and the dog is afraid of people wearing hats. It's not the hat that's actually dangerous, but the dog has learned to be scared of the hat. Another example to connect this back to the local Chico issues I talked about is imagine that you have been in an accident at a roundabout. Maybe it was only a fender bender or maybe it wasn't even a real accident. It was a near miss, but you've had that experience where it was really scary and maybe maybe it cost you money, maybe someone was hurt. But if you've had that experience, even of just using one for the first time and being scared because you don't understand how it works, that experience may create an automatic fear response for you anytime you come to a roundabout or even think about a roundabout that will proceed. It'll travel through your brain faster than the more conscious appraisal of looking at data that shows that roundabouts are safer. And I'm not saying this to put anyone down or say, oh, you're being too emotional. Like this is something that happens to all of us where our personal experiences with things that have negatively affected us create those automatic fear responses. So I'm not saying to like weaponize this and use this against people. Although I do want to mention that I did some research and I've heard about this topic in the past as well and could not find anything saying that roundabouts increased traffic accidents except for perhaps when people are first getting used to them. But even in that case, they're usually not as serious as the type of accidents that happen at like stoplighted intersections. One quote that really stuck with me was, in the case of roundabout accidents, you're usually cleaning up glass and not blood. Whereas the alternatives might be more serious where people are actually injured. And I will post the link for that in the show notes as well. Now, again, this is not to say if you've had a bad experience with roundabouts and you're scared of them, that you're wrong for feeling that. This is an automatic process that is out of our conscious control. And I personally hope that we can offer each other compassion for those times when we feel afraid of something or when our neighbors or our family members or our colleagues feel afraid of something. I hope that we can offer each other compassion instead of weaponizing fear and saying, oh, you're just afraid. This article that I'm referencing next talks about what are the effects of fear drawing on numerous different other studies. So when we experience fear for a prolonged amount of time, we can become very sensitized to cues that are perceived as a threat. We, without meaning to, just this is like an automatic process, our brains start prioritizing information about threats over other information. So we might overestimate danger because we're not taking in information that counters that idea that we're in danger. We're not taking in the information that reminds us that we're safe. So if I'm sitting at my computer and, you know, having an interaction with someone about a political issue on Facebook, my brain might just be processing all the ways that I feel threatened by what this other person is saying. And it's almost like I might not be processing, okay, I'm home. I, this person is not in front of me. My doors are closed and locked. They don't know where I live. They're not coming to get me right now. And so my body might respond as if I'm actually in immediate danger. There's also a selective retrieval of information that happens, which is kind of similar to what I was just talking about, but 
maybe a little different too because it could relate to memory where I'm only going to remember bad experiences about this thing that I'm afraid of and not neutral or even positive experiences. All of this adds up and can limit our ability to consider alternative ways to respond to a situation that aren't defensive or even aggressive because this part of our brain that has evolved to respond to threats really quickly is just telling us that we need to defend ourselves or maybe we even need to preemptively initiate an attack to protect ourselves before whatever the perceived threat is can hurt us. Unfortunately, as you may have heard said before, a lot of the situations that we're dealing with when we talk about politics are not an immediate threat where someone is immediately coming and threatening our lives. Now, this is not to say that policy issues don't affect our lives and our safety. I think that regardless of where we stand on various issues, most of us can agree that we do feel that policy issues affect our safety, but it's like not our immediate safety. It's like if we're talking about a law that isn't going to even take effect for another year or something, we're not in immediate danger. And so a defensive or even aggressive response to that situation might not always be helpful and it can actually be counterproductive. So what is a productive way then to respond to situations that scare us, but where we're not in immediate danger? Well, that's what I'm going to be talking about a little more next episode, the next few episodes, drawing on the same research and the same model from these authors. But in the meantime, if you're not going to jump right into that next episode or if it's not available yet, I just want to say again, like, I'm not encouraging us to shame ourselves or anyone for feeling afraid. I would even say that when you hear someone say, like, you're just reacting out of fear, that might itself be coming from that automatic fear response. Maybe the person saying that is afraid that they aren't going to be heard or that they won't be able to collaborate with someone else on a solution. And so they're afraid and then they're, you know, reacting to another person being afraid. I also want to reiterate that I'm not saying all fear is bad. I'm not even saying all automatic fear is bad. Sometimes that quick automatic response might save our lives or someone else's life. And so I don't know that there's an easy way to determine when it's useful and when it's counterproductive, but I would just invite you to maybe if you are in a situation where you're basically safe in your home or at work even just having a conversation with someone and you notice that fear start to happen and you have some idea that you're not in immediate danger, maybe just ask yourself more like, am I in danger right now? Maybe remind yourself of I'm in my house or I'm at work. This person might be having a disagreement with me, but they're not attacking me physically and I'm an animal. (laughs) I've evolved to have this automatic response. It's useful in some situations. Is it useful for me right now? And try to determine that because we've also evolved this capacity to consciously process situations and assess dangers in a different way. 
We'll be getting more into talking about hope and how these emotions play out on a mass scale, and also some more suggestions of what we can do, how to leverage this information in the next couple episodes. In the meantime, I want to invite you to share your thoughts with me. You can email me at dialoguedilemmas at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook at Dialogue Dilemmas or on Twitter at Dialogue Dilemma. I had to leave the S off due to character limits. I am a graduate student and am conducting some research in conjunction with the creation of this podcast. So uh, you'll see on all of my social media notices of informed consent that if you share your thoughts, I might anonymously, confidentially use them for my research. And I would really appreciate your participation for that reason. Thank you for listening. Talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.